Peace Building Podcast. My name is Susan Coleman. I'm a global coach, mediator, and the host of this podcast. Join me as I interview today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. I've known about Tom Hill for a very long time. I I can't even think how many years I've known about him and heard his name, but I've only recently um, met his acquaintance. I met Tom through Zach Metz, uh, and I know that Tom and Zach have worked with each other for years, uh, and Zach was on episode number eight of the Peace Building podcast. Uh, I know that also Tom and Zach, I think, have spent a bunch of time together in Iraq and were also graduate students at the School of International and Public Affairs at SEPA uh, at Columbia University. I also had one of his students, Lindsay Cornelio, I think she was episode number two, um, uh, one of his graduate students at um, the Center for Global Affairs, uh, the Peace Building Program. I guess he'll, he'll be more technically correct. And I'm also um, working with Zach uh, at NYU in, in Tom's program. And I was asking Zach in preparing for this, I said, um, so Zach, uh, what comes to mind when you think about Tom, like what comes first to mind? And Zach said, and I didn't ask him for permission to say this, but I'm sure it's fine. He said, you know, I think when I think of Tom, I think of single-mindedness. I think that most of us have this wanderlust. We're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing going here, going there. And Tom has been about Iraq from the very beginning. So when I think about Tom, the little I know him, I also think about Iraq. Um, I, I just had a lot of, I guess, a lot of times I've heard of Tom's going to Iraq. I don't know how I've heard those things, but I have. And, um, and I think of him uh, as setting up this, uh, one of the first programs, if not the, I don't know, uh, one of the first programs in peace building at NYU, um, which I definitely want to ask him to describe for us. And also somebody um, who's a father of young children and who is a marathoner. I think he just ran in the New York City Marathon uh, and has the kind of energy that marathoners have, you know, when you start talking to him, you think, oh my God, this definitely has a lot of, this guy has a lot of endorphins running through. He's got that kind of upbeat spirit. And, um, and let me, and then let me give you a more, uh, more official bio from him. Um, He's a Dr. Hill. He's officially Dr. Hill. Uh, He's a clinical associate professor at the Center Uh, for Global Affairs at NYU University's School of Professional Studies, where he is a director of the Initiative for Peacebuilding through Education. He oversees the peacebuilding concentration within um, the Master of Science in Global Affairs program. He's a peacebuilder, a peacebuilding practitioner and researcher um, with more than a decade of experiencing focusing on Iraq. Um, and he has made more than uh, 35 visits to Iraq and has overseen design, development, and implementation of a series of interrelated research and educational projects focused on increasing levels of peacefulness in Iraq. Um, I'm going to post this bio because uh, there's more that's really, really rich. 
Um, but I'm going to just skip to he's developed and taught many graduate level programs, um, including peacemaking and peace building, the workshop in applied peace building, and conflict assessment. He is a former journalist, um, and uh, his research has focused on the role of universities as actors, uh, um, as actors and sites for peace building. Um, so he's got you know all the other kinds of credentials that you might imagine he would have, um, and he's a super nice guy on top of all that. So welcome, Tom. Thank you for joining us on the Peace Building Podcast. Thank you, Susan. That is a very, very generous description, and I appreciate it. And I also want to say, when I first got him on the podcast, I thought, oh, my God, Tom, you just have a fabulous voice. You should be podcasting. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then he told me you, you were a journalist, but you weren't a you weren't a right. radio. But, but they were telling you you should be a radio person because it's, it's true. I, I was I was writing and uh, and I constantly heard that I should have been broadcasting. Yeah. Which I'm not sure what that means about my writing. <laughs> well, anyway, but you do have a you have a great voice. So, um, so uh, let me see. Where can we get started? There's so many things to ask you, but I guess I guess I'm super interested in hearing more about how you had the mojo to get that program going at NYU to begin with. And I'm sure the listeners would love to hear something about how that how that happened, how people create these things. You know, how, sure. how that got going. Sure. Well, it, it was a little bit of serendipity. I, uh, I actually hadn't been planning to start teaching at all. Um, uh, years back, I was uh, doing some of my applied work in Iraq and um, through a combination of sort of meetings and conversations, uh, a lot of it was through um, Carolyn Kassan, who's one of our faculty members at the Center for Global Affairs and is an old friend. Um, a few people there, one of the administrators as well, kind of encouraged me, you know, why don't you take what you're doing in Iraq and bring it into the classroom? And, um, you know, I sort of, I decided to take up the challenge and um, quickly saw that it was really meaningful for the students. They hadn't had anything like this before. And, um, you know, it sort of went from there. Uh, then when I, after teaching for, I think, let me, let me just stop you. It. Let me just stop you. When you say nothing sure. like this before, w tell me a little bit more about that. What was different about it? And, um, yeah. um, so I think, you know, the students had had some perception of, uh, sort of very traditional approaches to, uh, negotiation and conflict resolution, maybe from a diplomatic level. Um, you know, they, they sort of knew what they had read in the papers about high level, uh, government negotiators and, uh, the so-called mediators who are appointed by governments. You know, they, they kind of had an idea about this, but they didn't have any idea about, um, everything else, which was, you know, sort of setting the conditions for building peacefulness in a society or even helping to build conditions for those negotiations to be successful at the pol political level. They just hadn't, they hadn't really been exposed to anything much deeper than what you might read in the New York Times or the Washington Post um, on, a, on a daily basis. And so the class that I originally started teaching, uh, that I still teach, the the core course in peacemaking and peace building, we really aimed to go a lot deeper than that, to really think about all the different levels of peace building, all the different actors. Um, and as time has gone on, you know, I've sort of, I've, um, in that course uh, alone, I've, I've tried to really diversify it to help the students understand, you know, sort of both the, from an academic perspective, the disciplinary um, variety um, and from a more professional perspective, the, the sectoral variety, um, 
you know, how people can be doing peace building from a, a private sector business perspective, or they could be doing it from a community based NGO perspective. Um, and, you know, depending on the context, both, uh, you know, both may be needed. And that I saw that that was really sort of that idea really, you know, lit, lit up the students. One of the things that really excites me as so I just was doing a um, team diagnostic survey and uh, we were uh, with Dr. Ruth Ragman. She's at Harvard and we were talking about like, you know, what are the conditions that you set up that you need to have in place if you're going to have a team that's functioning in a successful way? You know, right. and that's a small group. And then you're sure. taking you're basically doing the same thing, I think, but in a huge with a huge group. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the hugest of groups, I, I yeah. think. Does that seem like a does that make sense to you or? Yeah, it, it does. You know, and one of the things that I think I've encouraged the students to do is to, uh, you know, try to do to think at two levels at once and think about the huge group. Um, you know, it's very much the I think something that that is really appealing to the students and really captures them is, um, you know, the the peace writ large, peace writ little work of, um, you know, Mary Anderson and her team yeah. and really thinking about you know, what it is to work with that small group that you mentioned, right? And then, well, how does that group now have How do you scale effect? that? How do you... How do you... Exactly. How mm -hmm. do you scale it? And it doesn't, you know, I think we all have come to the understanding that it doesn't scale by itself. There's no tipping point um, where you just, you know, work with a lot of people and then it automatically becomes a, you know, a, a more peaceful community. So this is kind of where the work started Why doesn't me. it scale by itself? Yeah. That seems like... Kind of, yeah, tell me more about that. Well, I mean, that's it doesn't I, I think case after case shows us that it doesn't scale by itself. Um, you know, what we see is um, lots of places. I mean, you think about, uh, well, a place I know you've worked, Afghanistan, where this, no, I haven't worked there, but stories that I've heard uh, from many different practitioners tell me about many, many local level successes um, communities that have figured things out and figured out ways to, um, you know, build, build or rebuild trust between communities at a very local level. Now that has not translated into, uh, the so-called big peace in Afghanistan. Um, and so, you know, no, this is not my idea alone. I, I adhere to it, but the idea is you have to be rather strategic and thinking about how those, you know, community level successes can actually grow into something without just assuming that they will, you know, making those linkages, for example, with government, those, those vertical linkages up the, you know, sort of up the leadership uh, hierarchy. And, so, so, Tom, yeah. uh, could you give me your definition of peace building? <laughs> or peace, I don't know, peace this building, is, this, peace making, yeah. uh, whichever, whatever you think is right here. Yeah, this is kind of a trick question. I just had a Sorry. discussion with a, fr <laughs> a friend uh, over uh, dinner last night mm -hmm. with, about this. Um, so there's, you know, there it wasn't my, a, it wasn't my intention. No, 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 no. There are, there are probably, I, you know, I don't have to tell you that there are probably as many different definitions of peace building as there are people working in the field. But to me, I, I use a very, very broad definition. Um, and to me, Peace building is sort of any kind of human activity that um, can lead to higher levels of peacefulness at a at a community, at a society, at a regional uh, or even a global level. And so, you know, as I, I kind of joke with some of my colleagues at the Center for Global Affairs sometimes, um, you know, our concentration in peace building is um, relatively, uh, I think some people call it boutique because it's, uh, it's got a relatively small number of students. Um, 
but I say to them all the time that actually they're all working for us in peace building because the people who do development work um, done well, that's contributing to peace building. The people who are doing human rights and international law work, that to me in transitional justice, that is contributing to peace building. The folks who are doing uh, sustainable um, you know, energy uh, green energy work that that is contributing to peace building, um, you know, on and on the people who are doing, you know, sort of real work on, um, you know, <laughs> fixing or addressing gender divides, you know, that is peace building. So, you know, this is, this is how I look at it. The, the best international relations work, the best global affairs work, um, any of it done well is contributing to peace building. So who, um, comes to the program and, and why do they come? Uh, so we get a variety of students. I think some of them come in, you know, knowing exactly that they uh, that they want to do this, you know, thing called peace building, uh, even if they don't exactly know what it is. Um, and we get others who come in, you know, I think like in any master's program and uh, in the U.S. or Europe or other places where people come in sort of vaguely with a you know vague notion that they want to work in international affairs. Um, make some sort of positive difference in the world. And then once they're in the program and they kind of look around and they see what this peace building thing is um, and that it's not, uh, you know, sort of uh, a group of, you know, sort of 1960s holdouts uh, just calling for, you know, peaceful demonstrations in the streets and that there's a real science to it. It, it appeals to a, a, a certain you know crowd who um, uh, I think really you know want to be both um, constructive but also rigorous in their practice. So, and what can, I mean, we don't have time to really go into it. But what are the kinds of th what do they learn? Could you give a little snapshot of the curriculum? Sure, sure. You know, um, you know the 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 basic things are um, I, to me. It's a very skills based um, program. Um, you know, I'm not interested in having people come into a master's program and not get paying uh, jobs at the end of it. So, you know, there are skills that I think we all would recognize. So, you know, we do a core class, the one I was talking about, that really sort of introduces them to the thinking and practice, um, you know, the sort of current state of it. And then we do a conflict assessment class uh, that I encourage all the students to take, uh, a mediation for global affairs class that... Um, uh, we've had a couple of great people teaching it. Brad Heckman, who I'm sure you know from the New York Peace Institute, and uh, Alan Gross, uh, Mediators Beyond Borders. They've both taught in the program. Um, we have uh, a class that I teach each spring um, and uh, the workshop in applied peace building that actually is sort of a combination of a project management and um you know, a, a field work class that uh, I actually teach in collaboration with Zach Metz, who you mentioned, um, you know, at Columbia. So he teaches the class there and I teach the class at NYU. And we actually bring the students together twice during the semester, once at each institution. Um, cool. I probably shouldn't be saying this on the podcast because probably neither university would be happy to know <laughs> this. <laughs> but um, but uh, we, uh, you know, we um, and then really those students get a chance to go out in the field and work with professional peace building organizations during the summer. And, um, 
you know, so by the time they've gone through the program, you know, they've been introduced to the theory um, and the current state of practice. They've learned skills like conflict assessment, mediation, um, project management, um, and then hopefully research skills as well. There's a variety of classes that sort of focus more on the on the you know on the research side of things. Students in our program all have to write a thesis or do a capstone project. So they they I I encourage the peace building students to do field work if you know if they're able to. And so hopefully when they come out, they've got this range of skills that organizations are actually looking for. And then what are they, what are the kinds of things, if you give a snapshot of that, that they tend to do when they come out? Um, You know, quite a few of them go into NGO work. Some go into government work. I mean, I've, because my work is in Iraq and I've had um, the ability to connect some students there. We, I think we have four or five different students who are working full time for different organizations in Iraq now. Um, We have, uh, you know, students who, go and work in uh, a variety of the UN agencies. Um, one of them actually finished the program and then got hired on as a consultant at UNDP to help lead the rewriting of UNDP's, the UN Development Program's um, uh, conflict assessment framework. Well, and peace building now has become a word that the UN really uses in its work, right? That's mm-hmm. that relatively new phenomenon, I think, but yeah, but, you know, and even even at the U.S. government level, I mean, you know, even though my view of it is the U.S. government sort of tends to be the last one at the party and these kinds of things, um, you know, I, a few years back, I was at a meeting uh, through the Alliance for Peacebuilding in Washington, and one of the staffers, I forget for which um, member of the House it was, came and said to us, you know, you guys have won. We all talk about peace building now, you know, we, we may not all be doing it. We may not all be putting, uh, you know, putting resources towards it, but certainly now everyone knows what it is. And that's, that's the first thing. So, you know, uh, when I'm intervening in groups and in organizations, it's always works if you have a really compelling vision of where you're headed. Mm-hmm. And I think the end game obviously of peace building is actually a, is a perhaps, I mean, I fully believe, maybe I'm just always the optimist, that we actually could get to a place where we are beyond war. We are beyond a patriarchal structure that I think stinks for both women and men, um, mm-hmm. that we really have that in our grasp. And uh, I don't know, that's a big question to ask you, but do you, do you feel that as well? Do you, can you see that? Do you think it's important to hold that vision for your students of where we're headed, why we're doing this, and what would come after? You know, Because there's always that that thing too about somehow that eh, peace is boring, you know, yeah, 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 or, you know, yeah. that, that whole, yeah. somehow that vibe that underlies some of the resistance, I think that happens to this mm-hmm. word and this field. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. I, I, I think I'm an optimist, but I think I'm also a great pragmatist. Um, and so I, I probably, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the broad vision. I'm much more, um, because I, I think especially with students and with, you know, colleagues that I work with in Iraq, for example, you know, the big question they have is, okay, that's great, but what do I do tomorrow? Yeah. And so I think what I really try and do is sort of hold that out there that like, you know, I teach one session in my class that has a lot to do with all of Galtung's notions of, you know, positive peace, negative peace. Maybe say who he is violence. just, just so that. Sure, you're... sure. Johann Galtung, the, you know, I guess mathematician and sociologist who a lot of people think of as the, you know, sort of the father of modern, modern, uh, peace and conflict studies. And, um, you know, so he's, his ideas around, um, you know, this idea of positive peace, 
that really includes an integration of society and, you know, an elimination of, of you know, structural imbalances um, versus a negative piece, which just means no war, right? Um, but doesn't sort of address any of those uh, sort of underlying issues. That's a great debate for our students. And what often happens in those discussions is um, people say, oh, but this positive peace idea, this is, you know, this is unrealistic. It's, um, you know, it, it's it's not something that can ever be achieved. And, you know, and I, you know, my response to that is often, well, tell me about the notion of human rights then. Can we ever achieve, you know, 100% compliance with human rights around the world? And the answer to that is probably no, right? There's there's always going to be an outlier. There's always going to be a violator. We are a flawed uh, species. I mean, right. yes, we know, you know. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, you know, what I want to remind them is that that doesn't invalidate the concept or, um, you know, make it any less uh, worthy of our pursuit. So, you know, keeping out this idea of positive peace um, and trying to build towards it and trying to, you know, work on these structural imbalances and these um, sort of, you know, relational, um, you know, cleavages uh, is, is very, very important. And the ultimate aim is, in fact, that that sort of positive peace. But at the end of the day, you really do know need to know what to do tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise you sort of sit in your chair and look around and, you know, think about Galtung's notions. But, you know, what do you do with it? And that's what I think we try and do at our program is to say, you know, let's let's understand what this big vision is. Um, but if you want to be somebody who's going to be working towards this rather than against it, um, let's sit down and start to learn some of these, uh, you know, these actually practical skills um, that, you know, that you can then uh, that you can then carry out. And, you know, and I should mention um, uh not just because you're you're here doing this interview, but you know the class that you and Zach teach in our program. Um, I think that's a big part of it, right? Learning learning these skills of working with groups. It's it's the you know it's one of the most difficult things for people to do. Even if you can do conflict analysis um, and you can do um, sort of you know one to one mediations, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to deal with um, you know the the dynamics of a group. And that's that's of course where the scaling up begins. And, you know, I, I think I said this to Zach on his interview as well, and have certainly been talking about this with the group that we're working with, is that there's this whole, I'm a gestalt, I'm a, I'm a gestaltist, I've had that kind of training in my background, and there's this notion of unit of work. And, you know, the unit of work can be the big piece of work, and it can be these micro pieces of work. And mm-hmm. in my experience working with groups, uh, and certainly my mentor constantly was drumming this into us, that if you... You have to be, if you can really deal with the small units of work, really even micro units of work, you can create a whole lot of energy in the system that then mm-hmm. translates into the larger unit of work. Now, this is all yeah. a little theoretical, but it, you can really feel it when you're practicing and you're working with a group of human beings. If you, if you don't do a beginning, middle, and end to a unit of work, mm-hmm. you lose energy in the system and people get kind of spacey and they, they, don't, they lose contact with each other and all yeah. these things start, to, all these dynamics start to happen. And I think probably that translates to the large, large system idea as well. And certainly to what you're saying about the importance of knowing these, you know, these skills and doing these these skill sets really well so that they begin to hopefully create that kind of energy in the system. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's definitely... um... I think that's definitely true. And, you know, there's a balance, though. I mean, there have been some writers who have, I think, been very persuasive about, um, 
this idea that peace building professionalizing may be a good thing, um, but that if we're only going to focus on the technical skills, we're missing the big point. Um, so, you know, having the skills is great, figuring out how to apply them and thinking about, um, you know, understanding, for example, that, you know, like a lot of people maybe in the 80s and 90s were starting to do, you know, going everywhere in the world to do mediation or conflict resolution training and delivering exactly the same material is not terribly effective. Mm -hmm. um, but understanding rather that there are skills and basic principles that need to be translated and interpreted locally, um, you know, that's when we start, I think that's when we start to win, um, where people can take up this principle and say, uh, you know, I, I get what you're saying about, for example, diversity or approaches to, you know, diverse communities. And we wouldn't do it the way you do it in Boston, Chicago, New York. But here in, um, you know, uh, in, in Iraq or Afghanistan or Pakistan, like we would have a different approach to it, but we can apply the same principle. And then when people start to think like that, then I think, you know, you have a chance to actually make the big change that we're talking about. So uh, this is a little out of order, but, you know, this is my order, uh, I guess. Uh, I wanted to just, you know, I want you to, you know, I want you to tell a story and I want to get to that pretty quickly. But I do mm -hmm. want to just do a little bit shift way back just to ask you, Tom, the human being, like, you know, when you were 10, could you have imagined doing this kind of work? And, and what, <laughs> what, what planted the seeds? Like, just give me a little bit of a snapshot of what planted the seeds in you to, to get to where you are and, you know, what your path has been to get to where you are? Yeah, I, well, it's been circuitous. I know when I was 10, I absolutely would have had zero interest in all of this. I was, uh, I was just about at the phase of my life when I was getting very, very interested in becoming a, um, uh, a journalist, in particular, a professional sports journalist. That's what I had my eye on shortly after that. I spent all my time through high school working on our high school newspaper and uh, developing writing skills. And, you know, uh, I think, you know, in those days, we were all imagining ourselves as, um, you know, the young Woodward and Bernsteins. Um, and of sports writers. <laughs> I, I was, well, the sports writing thing, you know, I did, I, I sort of went back and forth between trying to do, you know, sort of more news and investigative stuff. And then ultimately, uh, got drawn into the sports side of it when I got into college and, um, you know, and even in college spent all of my time in journalism, you know, worked on the, uh, I went to the university of Pennsylvania and worked on the, the daily Pennsylvanian, which, you know, I, I still think is one of the great college newspapers in the United States. And, um, you know, and I think I didn't realize it, but I was sort of while going through that process, I was, I was seeing a couple of things. I was one, I was seeing the great number of conflicts that in fact translated into news, um, and sort of the way that people were dealing with each other, both on the journalism side and then on the, you know, sort of more public side. And, uh, you know, I hadn't been a, uh, child who traveled at all. Uh, I, I, I like to tell people that I left New York state once before I was 17 years old. Um, and you know, then suddenly the world started to open up and, uh, you know, I met a bunch of people in college from other places and started to, uh, think about traveling. And then in the years after I finished, did quite a bit of traveling outside the U S and really just, you know, started to see things from a different light. And ultimately, even though I went off on a professional sports journalism career, um, 
I, uh, I got to a point where I thought this is, this is not enough for me. Um, it was fun, but it wasn't enough. And I wanted to be, um, not showing at a, at a workplace where the people that I was working with groaned when I walked into the room, which is what happens with most professional journalists and sport journalists, sport journalists. Um, and, um, you know, it was, it was kind of a, it was a very young man's for, to me, it was a very young man's business. Um, I had a great time with it, but I felt that there was something else out there and, um, really was one of those students I described earlier who didn't, you know, in those days we didn't really use the term peace building, but I decided to go back and get a graduate degree. I went to SEPA that you referred to earlier at Columbia, um, after working in journalism for really about 12 years, um, and got there and, and became fascinated with this thing called conflict resolution that suddenly started to answer some of these questions that were bubbling in my mind about how people were dealing with each, each other and what I was seeing even in the journalism world. Um, and the guy who really was the one who introduced it to me was Andrea Bartoli. Um, who, the, the guy it, who links us all. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And uh, so he was uh, he was a professor and then, you know, later became a colleague at the Center for International Conflict Resolution. Um, you know, I worked there for a few years after I finished my master's degree. And, um, you know, this is where sort of this whole idea, this is where the work in Iraq started. For me, it's where Zach and I met. Uh, it's where, um, you know, I, I can list a whole uh, other long list of people, most of whom you know, um, you know, who are who are out there in the field today doing this work. And, um, you know, and, and this is where I started to see that, okay, you can connect these theories. You're not just sitting in the classroom. Uh, but you can actually start to apply this. And for me, the brilliant part, which I've tried to carry forth in my own work, was when, you know, I think I'd been in the master's program for a year, less than a year. And Andrea came to me one day and said, uh, would you be interested in working on this project that, uh, you know, we're, we're just starting? And I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, we're going to work with these um, Kurdish uh, guys from northern Iraq um, and bring them here to the States to do some, you know, training. And, and honestly, Susan, I had no idea. I mean, yes, I had, you know, like everyone here, it kind of followed the 1991 Gulf war, uh, seen what had happened, but I knew nothing about, you know, uh, Kurdistan or the different groups there, uh, had no language capacity, nothing. And I, it sounded interesting enough to me. So, you know, they basically needed a graduate student who was going to do some of the, um, you know, some of the grunt work on the project. And I said, yeah, sure. Let's, let's see what this is. And that was in 1999, I think. That must've been the, the same pro project that I worked on that I actually yeah, exactly. facilitated. Yeah. That was the same yeah, group. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think I, I was doing a separate portion of it. Okay. I brought four of the, uh, well, you were doing the training work. Mm -hmm. I accompanied four of the, um, uh, gentleman to Washington for yeah. a week for a series of meetings because one of one element of the program was looking at, um, you know, sort of federalism and sort of civil society's role in building federal societies. And, um, and so I, you know, and I basically got on this Amtrak train with these four guys who I had never met before. And then, you know, later learned that there were, you know, two of them from one of the parties and two from the other party that had been involved in a, you know, violent conflict vicious, with each other, pretty mm -hmm. vicious, you know, war. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I'm sitting there wondering why are they sitting on opposite sides of the aisle, mm -hmm. literally on an Amtrak train, yeah. not really talking to each other. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that was really my introduction to all of this. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's so interesting. All right. So I want to get, uh, you know, I asked you to um, talk about a piece of work 
And I pretty much, I don't, you know, I sort of have an idea where you may go, but, I, but mm -hmm. you know, I wanted you to share that with the listeners, um, however you define that, whether it's a, a small project, a large project, and, you know, I know it's going to have something to do with Iraq. Uh, maybe it's <laughs> yeah. about Iraq as a whole, whatever. But, you know, if you could speak, start talking about it and, you know, the, the I'm going to be interested in like what's worked about it, what hasn't worked, you know, what are your challenges, things like that mm -hmm. um, in the time that we have. I think that would be super interesting. Sure. Sure. Well, I think it's um, this flows very naturally. So the, the the story I'll tell is the story um, as much of in, in as much detail as I can tell of our work with the University of Duhok. Um and just because it ties everything together. That's in Iraq, um, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's in Iraq. It's in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Uh, Duhok is a um, a city that's located. I guess the place everybody knows now is Mosul. Um, because it's very much in the news, because of military operations going on there. Um, so Duhuk is actually a place that is about 45 miles north of Mosul. It's very close. Um, you know, in, in better times, it's possible to drive there easily in 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And in better times, people did that. Many lived in one city and commuted to the other. Um, but taking you all the way back to that Amtrak train ride, um, you know, there were... Uh, people from each of these two political parties, uh, two from the Kurdistan Democratic Party and two from the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. Um, and one of those guys uh, uh, was named Barzan Omar Ahmed. I remember, uh, actually. Mm, I remember <laughs> the name. <laughs> yeah, so um, Barzan is just a, a lovely guy um, and just, you know, was was running around, you know, we came to Washington and it kind of I have this image in my mind still of him, like every piece of printed material that, uh, that he could find, he was gathering, he was filling up this sort of plastic, one of those, I think it was one of those plastic laundry bags from the hotel. Um, and that's all he had to carry something in. Uh, and so he just kept taking this bag and putting more books and things in it. and eventually the bag started to break and he was carrying this big thing around the city. And but he was just he was hungry for information, for knowledge, for printed material about this subject that he could bring back and share with people. Yeah. Now, he was not an academic in the strict sense of the word. He had graduated from Salahuddin University a few years earlier. That's in Erbil. Um, but he was still very active in sort of university affairs uh, on behalf of the political party, which is a very sort of normal thing there. And um, he very much kept pushing me to say, you know, let's set something up at the university. Let's try it. This conflict resolution thing is important. Let's found a center. Let's um, let's, you know, let's make this part of what we do. Now, I had no idea at the time that um, everything he was telling me was completely impossible. Uh, also, uh, by the way, what, how old are you at that point when this was all happening? Uh, About. 30, yeah, early 30s, okay. you know, 32, 33 probably. Mm -hmm. um, and um, he, uh, yeah, so he was, you know, and he was probably, I don't know, he was probably 25, 26. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You know, okay. maybe, maybe a little older, but, you know, he was in his late 20s perhaps. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he uh, was basically, you know, saying we could do this. But and I thought, you know, I was kind of taken by his energy and thought, OK, let's try and do this. So, you know, even when those guys went back, I kept communicating with him by email. And look, and that was in the those were in the days of, you know, dial up connections here. Um, and, you know, I'd send an email and, you know, maybe I'd get a response a couple of weeks later. 
you know, when the electricity and the internet were all working there, this was, you know, pre, um, you know, pre 2003 war. So Iraq was still under Saddam and the Kurdistan region was, you know, under that government, but somehow separated. Um, and you know, we, we just started this dialogue, he and I, and, you know, then one day he sent me a picture saying that he had sort of founded this center for conflict resolution at the, at the university. And there was a sign on a, an office and, um, and, you know, and then finally I had the opportunity to go, uh, I, I wasn't able to visit there until 2003 when, um, you know, it was possible to get into Iraq with an American passport. Um, you know, it was very difficult before that time. What had happened and, to make that change? Yeah. No, it, it was, what it was, had happened to make that change? Oh, so, How can so, that, in, so, so in 2003, when the Americans, you know, the American led uh, coalition, you know, went in to remove Saddam's uh, regime, um, you know, that I mean, the summer of 2003 was a completely lawless time in Iraq. Anybody mm-hmm. could get over the border for anything. Um, and so suddenly we went from a period of, you know, I worked with those guys when they came to the United States. We had subsequent meetings in uh, in Beirut. We were planning the next summer to go um, in 2003. We were actually going to do something, some work with them in Cyprus. And it was really at that time trying to build their capacity so that they could set up university programs. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you know, in April 2003, the war happens, starts, uh, and, um, you know, it was kind of terrifying from back here because we didn't know what was going to happen to our, our friends there. Um, but thankfully, you know, everybody that we knew emerged from it okay. And, um, and then suddenly, you know, one day I get this phone call from, um, I actually remember I was out, I was with friends, uh, up on Cape Cod on a weekend trip up at the beach. And this is 2003. And I had a, you know, a, sort of a very large cell phone at that time. And, um, things have definitely you know, changed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And my phone rings and mm-hmm. I pick it up and it says, this is Dr. Asmat Khalid from the president of the university of Duhuk calling me. Yeah. And he says, you know, I know you're planning to do this thing in Cyprus this summer, but forget it. Come here. He said, you can come. And I said, is that possible? And he said, it's absolutely possible. He said, you get here. Uh, I believe uh, he said, bring Zach and uh, and we'll work everything else out. And so um, that was sort of the start. Now, now, Barzan was back at Salahadin University, um, I think, hoping to host the same thing. But he was, you know, he wasn't the president of the university. He was a much more junior person. And so Duhuk had kind of swept, you know, sort of swept in and said, OK, we'll host this. Come here and let's work together this summer. And so um, and so we did. We, you know, Zach and I and uh, uh, Ted Johnson, who you may know, who at that time worked at the conflict management group, mm-hmm. um, you know, the three of us. Uh, got on a plane to Amman and, and, uh, got to Amman and then said, okay, now how, how do we get to Iraq? Um, and literally found a former student that we knew from SIPA who was interning at the U S embassy in Amman, who recommended a trusted driver to us. And we went to the, um, uh, cause there were no, know, we fly- went- there were no flights at that point. Well, there were no airports in the north. There was, there was, uh, you know, you could fly into Baghdad, but at that point, everything was just chaos. There there weren't any, you know, Iraqi Airways was grounded at that time. There were no, there was, there was, you know, maybe UN flights and was about it. And there was, you know, this company called AirServe that you may have crossed paths with, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, that flies into these humanitarian zones. Um, But, you know, we couldn't find our way in. And so finally, we just got this driver uh, who was recommended to us, and we went to the 
one of the big American hotels at two o'clock in the morning. And this is what they do. If you want to go to Iraq, they, you meet them in the parking lot at two o'clock in the morning and you you get into the, you know, the car and, uh, and then you set out for the border driving across the desert. The idea is to get to the border at six when it opens. Um, so we did this and we got there at six o'clock in the morning and, um, got, Passed the border pretty quickly. Um, started driving. Were you scared? You know, uh, it, it was your fear factor around, I, around this? It, you know, you know, I think I was so disoriented that I wasn't necessarily scared. You know, everybody has a different reaction. Zach and I have talked about this a lot. People in the field, right? We all have, we all have different reactions to things. Ted Johnson, he got in the back of the car. We've always laughed about this. He got in the back of the car, put in uh, sort of a, a face mask on to sleep over his eyes, and just fell asleep the whole trip. Slept, slept like a baby. In the I think it's a great way to deal with it if you can. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think Zach is, tends to be a more vigilant, you know, uh-huh. staring out the window the whole time. Right, right. And, uh, and I think I was just sort of sitting there and, you know, um, trying to take it all in, you know, in the middle of the night going through this, this uh, border. I think it was did, pretty, it was Did you have young kids? Did you have young kids I at did, this no, point? No, no, no. Okay. No, I did not have kids. Okay. No kids yet. Okay. And um, yeah, so that makes it easier, of mm-hmm, course. Mm-hmm. And um, so we crossed the border. Now we're in Anbar province, um, which, uh, you know, a lot of people know now that it's been a, you know, it's been a rough place in, in some ways, particularly for Americans. And um, but that de- that morning we drove through uh, Fallujah. We drove through Ramadi and got all the way to Baghdad, where we were then meeting the the brother of the president of the University of Duhuk, he had a house in Baghdad. He had us at his house for lunch. We walk in and we're in this very nice house in central Baghdad and there is a Kalishnikov leaned against every window in the house. Just, ready uh, for whatever Just say comes. what that is in case people don't know what that is. It's, yeah, this automatic weapon, this yeah. Russian, you know, made automatic weapon. Um, and so it's very clear that this house is uh, prepared for attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a little disconcerting when you walk into this. Um, but, you know, they served us a lovely lunch. And this is sort of the my introduction to Iraq in a way is that there's this wonderful hospitality um, and then weapons all around. Yeah. It's Afghanistan's uh, feel similar in that regard. Yeah. 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 Mm. And, you know, we finished our lunch and then uh, we were sort of transferred to another car that I think actually belonged to the university. And then we started driving north. Um, in a car with no air conditioning in the middle of August. Uh, and the way I've described it to people is if you can imagine somebody taking two very high powered, uh, hair dryers and putting them right in your face oh, and then geez. turning them on for three hours. Uh, awful. Just awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, you know, and so we drove there and, you it know, it gives you stopped. some sense of, you know, people that are in the military and all the, you know, the oh, stuff that they're wearing, you know, in that sure. kind of environment is like, Ugh. yeah. And we, you know, we stopped off for gas in Crete. And then we drove up through Mosul and, um, you know, and then finally made it to Duhuk. It must have been eight o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my first day in Iraq, I drove through Ramada, Fallujah, Baghdad, uh, to Crete, Mosul, and finally made it to Duhuk in wow. one day. Wow. And, um, you know, and then that was it. And then we got to Duhuk and met the university president. And then, you know, the next day, uh, people who we had known from the other cities, including Barzan, showed up and we started the work. And that was it, you know, there, there on that trip, I met a gentleman named, uh, Dr. Jotiar Sadiq. Um, and he is the one who today is the, um, he was sort of a, I don't think he had even finished his PhD at that time. Uh, but he had, 
he became the, the director of the Center for Peace and Conflict Resolution Studies. Now, what ended up happening is that, um, you know, Barzan founded the center in, in Saladin University. Some other colleagues tried to found a center at Suleimani University. There were three universities in the region at this time. And then um, uh, Jotiar and others founded the center at Duhuk University. And, you know, there was a little bit of a rivalry between them. Frankly, the people in Salahuddin University said, we live in the regional capital. We should be the ones to have this conflict resolution thing. It was kind of ironic, right? There was this argument about it's always the case, right? We always have to do that. You know, competition (laughs) is a fact of life for no matter what what you're doing. Yeah. But it was good because I think it inspired some you know, some, some action. On, Which is on what's good sides. about, what's good about competition. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, and so we got to a point where there were, you know, the, probably the two more active centers was the one in Salahuddin university and the one in Duhuk university. And really at this point they were just, they, they couldn't have any effect on curriculum. We soon learned because, you know, it was very centrally controlled by the ministry of higher education. Um, is this one of the reasons you said what they were asking you to do was impossible? Was this exactly what so yeah, you were yeah, getting yeah, into? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they actually asked us to help them develop curriculum. And then it took us maybe a year before we realized, you know, well, why aren't they developing the courses? Why aren't they starting to teach these courses? Because, of course, here, right in the States, if you're at a university and you come up with a you know fancy idea for a new course and your dean says, yeah, that sounds great. Well, then the next semester you just teach it um, after it gets necessary approvals. But there, there was no system for that. Mm-hmm. There was no way a professor could present a new course to a dean and have it accepted. It had to go either to Baghdad or to Erbil, to the ministry, and go through a, you know, and would have to be part of an entire curriculum reform effort that would require laws to be passed in the parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so it was, you know, just not possible. Yeah. So what they were doing instead was, you know, hosting small meetings to talk about sort of conflict resolution and doing some small conferences and inviting local leaders and, you know, doing sort of the little things, the small pieces that were possible for them to do. Now, the the unfortunate twist in all of this is that um, in 2004, uh, right after what I think was my third trip to Iraq, um, we had gone to, we'd visited with Barzan and his family in Erbil and he also worked for the um, the Iraqi Red Crescent, um, which you know is the sort of Muslim world's Red Cross. Um, and he, uh, you know, he had done a lot of he had done a lot of things in Erbil to um, draw attention to himself because of his work, and um, I think at times to irritate people because he was crossing all sorts of lines that uh, weren't supposed to be crossed. And so at one point, uh, we had had this, we had this lovely meal at his house in March of, uh, 2004, the end of our trip, uh, two of Zach and a, another colleague, uh, who worked with us at Columbia, uh, Sigrid Gruner. And we, um, had had this lunch and then we left to come back to the States. And I think it was about 10 days later, I got an email saying that Barzan had been killed. Mm. Um, he had taken his Red Crescent vehicle to the border uh, between Iraq and Turkey to meet somebody, uh, an international visitor who was coming with his wife. And that visitor had never arrived for some reason. And then Barzan drove his Red Crescent vehicle with his wife back for reasons we don't know uh, through Mosul, which was just getting to be really rough at that point. And apparently he was pursued by some drivers forced off the road and was killed 
at gunpoint. Um, his he and, his wife, he and his, wife, his wife as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, you know, one of our mutual friends, you know, they actually were the only reason I'm sure they identified him is because of the vehicle. I think they set the vehicle afire, the whole thing. And, um, it was, it was just a nasty, nasty, um, you know, way for somebody to go. Um, and that was, uh, you know, when he left behind four kids. Um, and so that was, that was a, you know, an incredible shock and loss for all of us. Um, and, you know, I think we all dealt with that for a long time. Um, and it certainly, in, in Erbil, at Salah Hadin University, in many ways it was the end of their work in this field. Um, they didn't, you know, he had been the, the guiding light. He had been the inspiration to the people to do it. And after that, he had some colleagues who were also interested, and they tried, they did some work afterwards, but it never, it never really, it never really stuck. So repeat again, the objective of all of that was to set up a, an academic program that, that incorporated all three universities, or, or no, yeah, necessarily? Yeah, we, we, we had agreed, the three universities had agreed to create this consortium at one point okay. that was going to work with us. I was then at Columbia and with um, uh, the conflict management group and with um, American University that had also worked with us on this. And it was going to be a peace and conflict studies program. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, they, they, they were basically calling it a, a conflict resolution center. Okay. You know, it was unclear what the boundaries were going to be because it mm-hmm. certainly wasn't going to be degree granting at that point. It wasn't going to be, you know, around coursework, but hopefully it was going to be more sort of research or action research based. Um, and, you know, I think they imagined that they would be able to conduct seminars, bring public officials together, um, you know, maybe do some sort of, uh, some sort of maybe informal mediation work. Um, you know, but they were really going to be kind of, I think an activist center more than an academic one. So that was about 2004. That that was 2004. Now, now what had happened and I'll sort of, I'll fast forward through the the story Mm -hmm. at this point through all those years, but that, that sort of brought to a close, um, you know, within a year or so, the work at Salahuddin University. Um, but interestingly, in 2003, the, you know, the work that had started at Duhok University, um, the other character in this story that I mentioned is Dr. Jotiar. Um, you know, he was not a big um, uh, attention getter, a very quiet guy, very unassuming guy, um, you know, definitely a real academic uh, specialist in international law. And he sort of very quietly um, continued to work on this at their center um, for years. And suddenly uh, in 2000, I want to say it was 2008, um, uh, a woman by the name of Victoria uh, Fontan, who um, I had known through a connection at Columbia and had gone on to teach up at Colgate, uh, she was interested in going to the region, had gone to the region and, and had met some of the people in our network. She had gone on to work at the university for peace in Costa Rica, the UN university, mm-hmm. and they were running a program. They had gotten funding, I think from the Dutch government to try to set up some master's programs in the middle East in peace and conflict studies. And basically she reached out to to hook and said, you know, this is the place that seems like it actually has some capacity and has this center. And there are some people who, you know, sort of know what this is about. And so they became one of the institutions that the university for peace started working with the only one in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And by 2009, I believe it was, they had been, um, 
able to set up a master's program uh, with contributions from the University for Peace. I went over and I taught a couple of classes in their first and their second cohorts. Uh, um, and they kept that going. And then, um, you know, one thing has led to another and the, the center has continued to grow. Um, we've been able to, you know, in the interim, I sort of, I made the shift in, uh, I think, 2008 or nine, uh, over to NYU. I was sort of had a foot in both universities for a little while, um, and then made a full-time shift there in I think 2010. Um, and sort of the project work went on and on and the center has grown bigger and bigger. Um, and to the point where we now have had this joint program running the last three years, uh, that we call community peace education, where, uh, 17 of the master's graduates from the University of Duhok have worked as community peace education and instructors with more than 4,000 uh, young people in the area on this uh, three-day curriculum that we co-designed. Um, and about a year ago, the president of the university, I was having dinner with him, and he said, we're going to start a Department of Peace Studies. And I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. Um, and sure enough, you know, sometimes you hear these things and they don't come to pass. Well, let me tell you, Susan, this has come to pass. The students wow. are actually entering the program next week. Wow. Um, Fabulous. they, they planned for 30 students. They got so many applications that they increased the number to 70. Wow. So they, wow. They, have, they got, I think over 200 applications for the program. So the under the, they, they expanded it to make it a Peace Studies and Human Rights program. So it's going to be the Department of Peace Studies and Human Rights. It's the only program of its kind in anywhere in Iraq. Wow. And, Sorry, is it uh, undergraduate, graduate? Undergraduate. Educated. So they're, they're mm -hmm. you know, because this is, this is basically how things have to be developed in Iraq yeah. and in much of the Middle East. You have to have an undergraduate program. And then to do a real master's program, then you're going to have to have graduates from that program and then ultimately a gotcha. PhD yeah. And so this this means that they've fully institutionalized this now. Wow. Congratulations. I mean, uh, that's that's. Uh... Yeah. But that was the arc, you know, and mm -hmm. it started in, you know, it started really from that first meeting in 1999. Right. Um, and it took until 2016. Right. So, I mean, that leads me to the question, you know, so that's 16 years. Well, whatever, 16, 17 years. Yeah. And uh, so what's been your conclusion learning about? I mean, you know, when Zach says, Oh, when I think about Tom, I mean, Tom's been, you know, it's all been about Iraq all the time. And um, you've been one of those people that has stuck with it. What's what are your conclusions or your observations? Or? I mean, the, the the obvious one is that this takes a long time, this work mm -hmm. to to, you know, accomplish things that are sustainable, mm -hmm. um, that it's not uh, the, the, none of this work is linear. You know, there are moments when it looks like things are are dead and not happening. Um, and it does not mean that there is not sort of a brighter moment just around the corner um, that sometimes uh, the worst moments are the ones that lead to the um, most constructive outcomes. I mean, to be honest with you, if. I don't know that the University of Duhok would have gone down this direction had the Islamic State not taken over Mosul. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that crisis on the doorstep made uh, people there feel like they needed to start doing something really differently. Uh, 
Out of, and, the, out of the manure uh, comes the vegetables or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, I've gotten to know in the last couple of months um, the president of Mosul University, since that university is operating in sort of an exile out of Dahuk at the moment. And, um, you know, I've been talking to him about it, and he's actually interested in when this is sort of all, you know, when the military operation is completed and um, people you know, in whatever way are able to return to Mosul, he's interested in seeing this taught at Mosul University as well as something that is fundamental um, in the aftermath of this, you know, sort of awful tragedy that people have been, you know, experiencing the, there. This may be an obvious question, but why were so many students interested in entering this program? You know, I haven't met them yet, so I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating. Um, but I think there is... Um, you know, the younger generation that I've seen in Iraq um, is very different from the younger generation I encountered 16 or 17 years ago. Um, they actually understand that a lot of them understand, I should say, that um, that in order for their society to grow and improve, they have a responsibility to do something. Mm -hmm. And that was not the understanding of the generation just before them, right? Which was coming, uh, you know, grow up under an authoritarian regime, you know, under the sort of, you know, most basic sort of socialist principles where, you know, competition was discouraged and um, all of these things. So there's been a major shift and I, I sense it's because of this, people are actually getting this idea that if they're going to develop a more peaceful society and they are tired of this alternative. I mean, I keep hearing this, you know, I was at a conference last week in Amsterdam, sat on a panel with the, the president of Mosul University and a professor from Tikrit University. And <clears throat> fundamentally, everybody was saying, we're, we're tired of doing things this way. We, we have to be done with this. It's a uh, calling to, it's, I was in South Sudan in May and I was at the peacekeeping mission there and there was a, uh, there was a really young Yemeni soldier and I was telling him about this podcast and he said, oh, sign me up. I am so sick of, <laughs> of the military option here. You know, we've been doing yeah. this for so darn long and it's just got right. to do something different. We just have to do right. something different. So it's like that kind of. Voice. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it is that kind of voice. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it'll be interesting because doing something different is not going to mean just, you know, getting an undergraduate degree in peace studies. Um, sure. There's a there's going to be a lot more to it. And, you know, there are structural changes that have to happen. And, you know, look, none of this is any different from what we are dealing with here in the United States. Yeah. Oh, and, actually, OK. You know, what yeah. do you mean by that? That's a big statement. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, the, the, the people are different, the histories are different, mm -hmm. the, you know, the cultures are different. All of that, of course, is different. But the reality is, um, unless you address the structural problems and actually look at things on a systemic level, uh, how we do things, um, you know, people can get all the education and all the degrees they want and nothing will change. So, you and know, in Iraq, you, there are simple What are you things. talking structural? Can you fill so, that so, out a little bit? You know, so, yeah. So in, a, so in an Iraqi context, you know, something I said at this conference last week was they have a system, an educational system um, that is a sort of a high stakes baccalaureate exam that every student takes at the end of high school. And you get a number, you know, something from zero to 100 on it. And based on that number, that is determines which um, 
college within a university you can attend and essentially which subject you can study. You get a very high number, you can study medicine or engineering. You get a lower number, you go into the social sciences. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if you think that through, what that means is that, you know, leaving aside the possibility that very bright students can be poor test takers. Um, generally speaking, this means that people who go into the social sciences are the lowest performers in society. So if you sort of carry that forward, you start to understand the kind of society you're going to build, one that does not have a lot of strength in those, you know, or a lot of capacity in those areas. And you become a very sort of rigid, um, you know, technical society, um, which doesn't leave a lot of room for, let's say, social innovation. So that's the structural change that I yeah, said to people there. You, if, if you, you make that one change uh, in Iraq, and I think you'll see, you know, some very bright people deciding to go into the humanities and go into um, social sciences, and that will shift everything. Policy yeah, like reallocate your brain power, just reallocate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The brain power is there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and so, and we have, you know, and we have different systems here um, that are, you know, reinforcing inequality the way our education system works. You know, the higher education system here that, um, you know, that rewards fundamentally, um, you know, people who have a, a lot of uh, extra resources to spend and, you know, and now, you know, obviously has burdened many, many, many young people with unfathomable, you know, levels of debt. Um, so in some sense, you're, you're, you're creating the same situation because, uh, you know, how can you get a very bright young person from an, uh, you know, a somewhat marginalized community who wants to go into the social sciences? I mean, it's impossible, right? It's, you can do it, you can get your degree and then, you know, you have, you know, $150,000 of debt to pay off and a job, you know, in a social service agency that's only going to pay you, uh, you know, $30,000 a year. It just, it does not compute. Um, so, um, I think that, that, you know, when we talk about these things, it's, we have to be very careful not to be, you know, just throwing stones and saying, well, they, they need to reform the structures over there in Iraq, but actually understand that we have many of the same problems here, you know, in, in different clothing. Um, and that unless you reform the structure, uh, and commit to that, you know, uh, you can do nothing. So Tom, we're, I'm looking at the time and just aware of that. If you had to, uh, I don't want to force you into this, but if you had to summarize like the, the top three learnings from the work in Iraq or, or the top learn, you know, like a couple of learnings or insights from the work in Iraq, what would you say? So I think that, um, somehow interrelated, um, number one is that this all takes a lot of time and requires a lot of patience. Um, and so if that's not your tendency, this may be very difficult to work to engage in, uh, as a practitioner. Um, number two would be, you know, and I think this is closely related to the first one that, um, you know, and I'm very much a, an adherent of John Paul Lederach in this sense, like it's about the relationships. Um, you've got to respect the relationships. You've got to build the relationships. Um, you've got to have real relationships with partners um, in order to do this work. Um, and that's and I think that's true domestically or internationally. Uh, you, you've you've got to re you know, these relationships have to be real. You know, I, I've 
been told for a long time, like, why don't you have, you know, memorandums of understanding with these universities you work with? It's like, well, that means nothing. What matters is the fact that my partners and I trust each other. And so you've got to have that, um, uh, you've got to have those, those meaningful relationships. And, um, and, and I think the third thing is that, um, you know, really anything is possible, um, provided, you know, it's sort of like, but go back and look at one and two, <laughs> All right. So if, if you're patient and if you respect the relationships, then number three, anything is possible. Anything is not possible in a two week period or during a five day workshop, however. So what's, and uh, that's great. And what's been, if you had to say, what's been your greatest satisfaction, joy from the whole thing? I don't know if joy um, is the right word, but yeah, sat yeah, no, satisfaction no, uh, certainly must be, or, or yeah, satisfaction. I think the, the continued engagement with so many different people, the fact that I have, you know, friendships with, uh, so many, many people that I've, I've worked with, um, you know, who now, uh, you know, some of them have had the opportunity to come here to the U.S. And, you know, I have some great photos of some of these friends coming in and holding my younger son when he was, you know, less than a year old. And in my house after my many visits to Iraq and going to go, I've been to Iraq and brought, my wife's been there twice with me now. And we brought our younger son actually when he was hmm. uh, less than two years old. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, this is... To, the satisfaction of just being able to show everybody that, you know, we can do this. We can actually relate to people in this very, very, you know, difficult context and we can be human with each other. And more than anything, you know, I consider a lot of my colleagues, my, they're my friends now and, um, you know, extended family, some of them. And that's, that's very satisfying to me to be able to say that. I think one reason people have a hard time focusing like you have is, uh, well, there's economic reasons, but also sometimes they feel like they're going to miss out or not learn from other systems. And I guess that there's a, the question is, uh, how have you focused on Iraq, but made sure that you get learnings from other systems that maybe help you know what to do or not what not to do? Can you say anything about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously I've been uh, almost single, you know, single minded to use Zach's term on, on Iraq for a long time. Um, but I think, you know, listening to other people, I mean, the, the one thing that I heard a lot when I started working in Iraq and hear it occasionally is people were always looking for like, well, particularly donors, you know, aren't there other cases that you could be learning from or that, you know, maybe we should bring in trainers from other places in the Middle East that have also experienced ethnic conflict. And so there was this idea, you know, let's bring people from Lebanon to Iraq. And my Iraqi friends would always say, yeah, but it's really different. It's yes, they speak Arabic, although a different Arabic. Um, and yes, they have different, you know, sort of uh, ethnic and confessional groups, some of which look a little like ours, but their politics are totally different. Their history, their experience of colonialism, everything was different. Um, and so, you know, I think it's okay to, you know, see if there are some lessons to be learned from these other contexts, but, um, but they're, they're very, some of the lessons are very superficial. And um, the primary lessons to be learned are actually from the context in which you're working. Um, you know, look, it's completely possible that, you know, I mean, even as I'm talking, the, these other universities are, are 
toying with the idea of creating programs like the one in, in Tehuk, um, and even Mosul, which is 45 miles away, has a very, very different context. And so they will be able to learn something from Tehuk's experience, but they'll have to build something that's right for their city. And so I think to me that's, you know, rather than forcing the comparisons and the lessons learned from these other cases, it's really respecting the fact that each context is really unique unto itself and proceeding in that way um, and not not trying to, um, you know, not trying to just replicate, replicate, replicate. Yeah, that's a super interesting response and, and could be a much longer conversation, but yeah. I, I'm not going to go there because of the time. And I do want to ask you. A question I just like to ask, which is, uh, and maybe it's going from the sublime to the ridiculous. No, well, I don't know what that. Maybe it's going from something <laughs> so big to something so little. But is there a? Do you have a favorite tool, technique, process it, when you're doing peace building work? Is there something a favorite? Doesn't have to be the favorite uh, methodology that you particularly like. You know, rely the, on. The, 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 the thing that I've really liked, um, particularly with this last program that we've worked on, uh, the community peace education in Duhuk, uh, has been looking at the work of Bill Yuri and the third side, mm-hmm. um, because I think bringing that to people, uh, is really, really, I've seen it be very, very powerful when people are actually, you can use it as a challenge and say, look, here are 10 peace building roles. These may not be all of them, but this captures a lot of it. And can you see yourself in these roles? And this is actually what we work with the young people doing in the workshop. They, they have to sort of go back to their communities, try and, you know, uh, apply some of these principles and then come back to us and say, so which one are you? Mm-hmm. Are you a bridge builder? Are you a teacher? Are you a provider? Are you a mediator? Are you a peacekeeper? What are you? And that's the thing that I, where I've seen the spark where the students say, aha, Okay, so we don't all have to be doing the same thing here. Um, and what's interesting is I do it with my students in the master's program. We, I always run a session on sort of third side and peace building roles. And by the way, what and, are you talking about? It, 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 a book that he wrote or yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah. But uh, that was getting to peace and then it changed the name to the... Right, right. It was getting to peace and then he changed it to the third side. To the third side. So, um, and, and, he, is, and he describes what you're talking about in that book. Yeah, these these ten roles, and yeah. and you know Zach actually was the one who sort of I think called my attention to it originally, and then he developed a module that we used in some workshops many many years ago, and I've built on that um, to really use it as a you know as a challenge to people to say, you know we're not just teaching you a model here, but we're introducing you to a way of seeing yourself in the world as a peace builder, and you know look, if you can't see yourself in any of these roles, that might tell you something too. Um, but really it is about taking personal responsibility. And, you know, I've talked to students, you know, our program probably like a lot of others, these last few weeks have been difficult um, after the, the, you know, with the results of the election. And essentially, you know, a lot of people have been saying, well, what can I do? And well, I ended up doing this session with my students, I think it was the first session after the election, and said to them, this is perfect timing, because here's what you can do. Mm-hmm. If you're really, if you're serious about asking that question, and you're not just, you know, saying it to, to get something off your chest, um, here's what you can do, you know, you can play one of these roles, and you can take it seriously, and, you know, in your home life, in your community life, and in your professional life. Beautiful. Beautiful. So, um, yeah, we need to wind down, and I want to know if there's uh, 
Oh, let's see. I guess any final words of wisdom for people that uh, maybe wanted to enter the peace building field? Uh, I think that would be good for you specifically to be able to speak to that. Um, yeah, I mean, very simply, um, be humble. Um, I think the the you know the the important thing is to do this work is to not think we have all the answers, um, to not bring, you know, too much of our, uh, expertise to bear. I often tell students that once someone calls you an expert and you accept the title, you have now guaranteed that you will have no impact on anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why do you say that exactly? <laughs> I, I think I think it's too because what it indicates is too strong a belief in yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it, it. I think people who really believe themselves to be experts, at least they've turned off part, if not all, of their listening. Yeah. And um, you know, we we've got to be listeners first. Yeah. We've got to be you know respecting other people's points of view and um, you know and and again their histories and their cultures, whether it's in you know, Brooklyn or Baghdad, uh, and you're reminding uh, me of Aldo Civico, who I know you know him. He, he, yeah, sure. he tells exactly that story of going down to Colombia and coming down thinking he was the expert and realizing very quickly that he had to just completely let go of all of that or else he was yeah. going to fail miserably. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. So, you know, so it's hard, especially if you're an American master's program and you're spending a lot of money to get your degree and, you know, going through all this. And then you have your, you know, professor telling you and don't even think about being an expert, um, but really think about being a listener and thinking about how to connect, um, you know, connect with people and, and build relationships that that's really the key to this. Um, that's, that's a hard thing for young people to do going out into the world. And, um, you know, I think probably everywhere, you know, and so, uh, but really sort of learning to be genuinely humble, um, is probably the best thing that you can do to, to start off in this field on the right foot. And if you were to think of a book resource, some of the key ones that you just, uh, feel, and again, not to put you on the spot, there may not be a one, but if there is something, you know, mm -hmm. key resources that you particularly think are, have been valuable to you or that you recommend? So probably my favorite book in the field still is, uh, John Paul Lederach's The Moral Imagination. Mm -hmm. the mor uh, you're saying the moral imagination. The moral imagination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's about 10 years old now. Um, it's fabulous. It focuses on the need for creativity in peace building, um, sort of looking at the artist's spirit. I've never thought of myself as particularly artistic, but um, I think this book emphasizes the need to, uh, again, break away from sort of just simple technical approaches to the field and really understanding that we need to, um, you know, sort of broaden our horizons and use or, you know, embrace creativity and diversity in, a, in the work. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually having uh, some dancers coming onto the podcast pretty soon. So mm, I don't know if that's nice. exactly what you're talking about, but dancers, dancers, musicians, I think are often, you know, yeah. So anyway, Tom, I, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say, but it, any other any other things that you feel like you've left out or you'd like to? Well, I could go on for an hour. I know, I, probably, I know. Probably, <laughs> we probably should wrap up and uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but it's um, yeah, it's it's just it's a real pleasure to get to talk about this. It's actually really nice for me to get to reflect on uh, some of these things, um, you know, and share them with you and hear some, you know, have some dialogue about it. So I am really thankful for the opportunity to be with you. Yeah, and I'm really grateful to have this conversation with you, and and really grateful for the work that you're doing and the dedication that you brought to it, and the and the consistency that you've brought to it over time. I mean, I think it's it's really uh, it's a real model for a lot of people to look at. So. Kudos to you. Thank you very much. And um, all right. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Susan. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peacebuilding Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. Please email your comments, suggestions, and ideas to susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And join me next time for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.